Well, hey everyone, uh, welcome back to our series of Zechariah as we continue looking at this book using the aid of technology. Uh, it's quite amazing that we're able to do this. And, and we are going to look today at Zechariah chapter 3 from verse 6 through verse 10, so all the way to the end of the chapter. Again, that's Zechariah 3 verses 6 through 10. And as you are turning there in your Bibles as we're getting ready to begin the lesson this morning, I just have one quick announcement And that is that Pastor Adam and I are this Wednesday going to begin looking together at the book of Leviticus. Uh, It's one of the most neglected books in Scripture, to be quite honest, because there's a lot of difficult things in there. But we're excited to do this this Bible study together for you all. And we're going to be doing it live on Facebook. So if you have Facebook, or I think even if you don't have Facebook, you should be able to still go to the Pearl Presbyterian Church Facebook page. And you can watch that live. I believe it's going to be on Wednesday night. And there will be more details about that if you check out the page. And actually, when we do that Bible study, you will actually be able to participate in the discussion by leaving comments. And then we can um, respond to those comments and questions during the Bible study. So it'll be very fun to present some material and have some discussion on there. And we hope you'll take advantage of that because we want to stay connected with you even when we can't meet in person. And technology gives us some amazing ways to do that aside from simply recording lessons and sermons like what you're listening to right now. So be sure to take advantage of that and be on the lookout on those Facebook pages for that Leviticus Bible study that Adam and I are going to do together. All right. Getting back to Zechariah, let's continue our series by looking at Zechariah 3, verses 6 through 10. And I will read that passage for us here. There's some fantastic teaching in this passage. I'm excited to get into it here with you all. Zechariah chapter 3, verses 6 through 10. I'll read it for us here as we get started. And the angel of the Lord solemnly charged Joshua, saying, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, If you will walk in my ways, and if you will keep my obligations, then you will both govern my house, and you will keep my courts. And I will give to you the right of passage among these people who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, high priest, you and your friends who dwell before you, You are men of a sign. For behold, I am bringing my servant, the branch. For behold, the stone which I have given before Joshua is a stone upon which are seven eyes. And behold, I am engraving an inscription, declares Yahweh of hosts. I will remove the iniquity of the whole earth, On that day, on that day, declares Yahweh of hosts, you, every man, will summon his neighbor and meet under the vine and under the fig tree. Let's go before the Lord in prayer as we get started here. Father and our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this prophecy of Zechariah. We thank you for the many things that you have to tell us about your Son, Jesus Christ, in this book. Lord, pray that you help us to see Christ. Lord, pray that you'd accomplish what you want to do as we study your Word. Father, open our eyes to behold wondrous things from this, your instruction. 
We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now just to do a little bit of review, we are currently in Zechariah in the sections of the eight night visions. All right? So there's a couple different, there's five sections of Zechariah. We looked at the first one the first week of Zechariah, which is his call to repentance as he calls the Israelites in his own day to repent and to turn to God after the Babylonian exile and to not be like their fathers. Uh, Then we've seen a bunch of different visions, like the vision of the horses and the vision of the horns and so on, that put God's omnipotence and his omniscience on display that show he's got power over the nations he knows what's happening around the world and he is not silent he's not doing nothing he is at work even though he seems like he is sleeping and then we got to the vision of the priest last week and the vision of the priest is a beautiful declaration of the gospel and we saw the doctrine of double imputation being described last week as we looked at that now in our section that we're dealing with this week this last half of chapter three of zechariah we are essentially continuing the vision of the priest but what we hear in verses six through ten are the words of yahweh that is yahweh is explaining something to his uh, listeners and zechariah is recording it for us We see in verse 6, the angel of Yahweh solemnly charged Joshua, saying, Thus says Yahweh of hosts. All right, so now from that point on, we have the words of Yahweh, and there is so much theology of the Messiah packed into these verses, and we want to go through and just break it down slowly for us. All right, let's take a look at what we have to say. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the second half of verse 7. Here's what Yahweh says. If you will walk in my ways, and if you will keep my obligations, then you will both govern my house and also you will keep my courts. Now remember here, Yahweh is speaking to Joshua the high priest. And you remember Joshua the high priest from last week. He was the one standing in the courtroom being accused by Satan because of the filthy robes of sin that he was wearing. And you remember we talked about double imputation. Jesus, the angel of Yahweh, or the angel of the Lord, removed the sin from Joshua and placed upon him his white robes of righteousness. And there we have the gospel. And he did that because God elected him. We saw that God chooses Jerusalem. He chooses his people like a brand plucked from the fire. All of that we saw last week. And now, in light of justification, God now gives commands to Joshua. He says, walk in my ways. Perform my obligations. That is, keep my law. And so it's in verse 7 that we see sanctification being described. You'll notice here that these obligations that God is placing on Joshua, saying, keep my law, walk in my ways, these are not things that God does before Joshua has been clothed with righteousness and his sin forgiven. Notice these commands come after. God doesn't say, all right, Joshua, if you keep my commands and if you keep my obligations, well, then I will give you Jesus' righteousness, then I will save you. Then you will have earned your own salvation. No, he doesn't do that. The obligations come after salvation has already been accomplished. After justification has taken place, 
we now have sanctification. And that's the standard biblical order that we see. There's all kinds of people that pervert the gospel and try to flip the order and say, well, you need to keep God's commands and then he'll save you. No. The Reformation understood the Bible fantastically and promoted this idea, as Luther said, that once we are justified, we then must produce the, the fruit of good works. That's what true faith is going to do. The good works don't count toward our salvation. No, the good works come after we are already justified, after we are already saved. And that's exactly what we see here. Joshua the high priest has already been pronounced holy to the Lord with the pure turban that has been placed on his head. And now God gives him obligations. God says, you must do these things. This is sanctification. And it's written all over it. And God says, if you do these things, then you will govern my house and you will keep my courts. This is priestly language. Because remember, Joshua is the high priest. He's in charge of the temple. He's in charge of the sanctuaries. And God says, if you do these things, keep my, keep my statutes, walk in my ways, etc., you will govern my house. You'll govern my temple. You will keep, take care of it. And you'll keep my courts. Those were the outer courts of the temple that God's referring to there. And then God says, last part of verse 7, and I will give to you right of passage among those who are standing here. Now that's a, a very difficult phrase that you are looking at there. You give you right of passage among those who are standing here. It's a little bit difficult to, to deal with because who are the ones who are standing there? That's where it gets a little bit tricky. Uh, what We can find the answer though if we go back and we look at verse 4. And the angel answered and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from upon him. Now, in the context of what's going on here, I think that the people who are standing there are angels. Because we see Jesus, the angel of the Lord, commanding people, some, some kind of creatures, some creatures standing, standing near, to remove the filthy robes from uh, Joshua and to put the white robes on him. So it seems like you're kind of in a heavenly setting there. You're in a setting where Jesus is commanding the heavenly host to do this. He's commanding his servants. And his most immediate servants that we find in Scripture, as well as in the context of Zechariah, are angels. And so if that's the case, and commentators generally agree on this, if that's the case that those standing here in verse 7 are angels, then think about what God is saying to Joshua in that last half of verse 7. Let me read it again for you. And I will give to you right of passage among those standing there. Translation, I will give you right of passage among the angels. Now you see what God is saying there. As a result of being justified and obeying God throughout life, then I will give you right of passage among the angels, among the heavenly beings. That is, you will come and live with me in paradise, in eternal heavenly bliss. You will come and live with me in eternal heavenly bliss. That's what's going on here. It's a promise of heaven in kind of a, a more cryptic way. 
So I will give you right of passage among those standing here. Now, verse 8 changes dramatically. Here we have justification, sanctification, and glorification, right? Three major stages of of, uh, um, human salvation. We're justified, we're in the process of sanctification, and then we reach glorification, where we are among the angels in heaven one day, right? That's what's described here. Standard golden chain salvation doctrine, like what what, uh, Paul talks about in Romans 8. But now in verse 8, the tone shifts. Yahweh's going to say something different. He's going to treat a different subject. And listen to what he says here. Hear now, O Joshua, you high priest, you and your friends who dwell before you are men of a sign. Now there, what what, um, God is beginning to talk about is he's beginning to talk about the nature of of the priesthood. You remember, Joshua is the high priest. And when God talks about those who dwell before you, there he is discussing priests, the priests that Joshua, the high priest, is in charge of. So we've got Joshua and the priests, in verse 8, God says, are men of a sign, or men of the sign. And what God is saying there is that Joshua and the priests are signs of someone who is coming who will be greater. That is, they are types. We would call it a type in English. Uh, Hebrew doesn't have the word for type, so they're just going to use the word for sign. So Joshua and the priests are types of a greater person, a greater priest who is going to come in the future. See, God warns Joshua, the priest, and all the rest of the priests of Israel that they are not the end game. They are not the end. They are not God's ultimate culmination of redemptive history. There is more to come, something greater, something that the priesthood of the Old Testament is looking forward to that hasn't come yet, but that is on its way. And the rest of this passage is prophecy about what that person is going to be like who comes who is the ultimate priest to whom Joshua the high priest and all the other priests point. I want you to see that. That is so critical to get. God is saying explicitly right here that the priesthood of the Old Testament is looking forward to something greater. They are simply a type of something to come in the future, a sign of something to come in the future. And look at the last part of verse 8. You are men of a sign, for I am bringing my servant a branch. I am bringing my servant a branch. Here we have two titles for this person that Yahweh is bringing in the future who will be the ultimate priest, if you will, the ultimate fulfillment of the Old Testament priestly system. And the first title that God gives to this person that he's bringing is the title, My Servant. Now, this is not the first time that My Servant shows up in the Old Testament. No, it shows up in a lot of places. For example, Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, we see My Servant showing up. In the text, let me read for you here from 
Isaiah 53. This is the classic uh, Jesus messianic prophecy. In fact, it was so, uh, this passage is considered to be so clear and so clearly referring to Jesus that many liberal, critical, biblical scholars thought that Isaiah 53 was written after the time of Jesus. And they thought it was so clear, there's no way it could have been written before. But then they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Dead Sea Scrolls are old manuscripts of the Old Testament from before the time of Jesus. And what a shocker, the book of Isaiah is exactly the same before Jesus as it is after Jesus. And so the liberal scholars were silenced at that point. This is clear prophecy about Jesus, and it was written before his time, authenticating that prophecy. But anyway, getting more to the point here, let's look at verse verse 10 of Isaiah 53. You don't have to turn there, but let me just read it for you. This should be a very familiar passage to you, but listen. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Now here it is, verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Notice that clear prophecy about Christ, that this suffering servant of Isaiah is going to come, and the righteous one, my servant, will make many to be counted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Right? That's a prophecy of Jesus. He's going to give us his righteousness, and he's going to pay our sin debt on the cross. And we see this this character the servant of Yahweh, the servant of the Lord, my servant, all throughout Isaiah. And that servant is Jesus. And so here in Zechariah, of all places, we have a prophecy. I am bringing my servant, God says in verse 8. I am bringing my servant. And then God gives a second title to this servant that he's bringing. Verse, very end of verse 8 in Zechariah 3, I am bringing my servant a branch. Now, at first glance, the word branch can seem like a very strange title for Jesus. Like, really? You're going to call him a branch? Can't you at least call him a log or a tree trunk or something that sounds more manly or or tough? You're going to call him a branch? Well, let's... Let me look at uh, Isaiah chapter 11, and here's where we begin to see why Jesus is called the branch here. See, it becomes very clear that that Zechariah has Isaiah's prophecies swirling around in his head as he's writing this, that that he's drawing upon Isaiah's prophecies very heavily, and the imagery and and the titles for the Messiah. Listen to Isaiah chapter 11, and I'm going to read for you verses 1 through 9, a little bit longer, but just listen to these words. Isaiah 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord 
and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw with the ox. Nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, the branch of Jesse, Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Here we can see in this passage, if you didn't catch it in all of that text, that the Messiah is described as being a branch growing out from the stump or from the root of Jesse. Now, what that's saying is that Jesus is going to come from the line of David because Jesse is David's father. And you notice what this branch symbolizes. It symbolizes humble origins. This little branch is going to grow out from the line of David and he's going to accomplish all these things that I just read. It's describing shalom. It's describing peace. He's going to bring peace so much so that a child will be able to play above the cobra's nest. That's the work of Christ, bringing God's shalom to the world. And of course, we talked about before, there's an already and a not yet aspect to that. Already where, God, where Jesus has brought peace between God and man, and there's a not yet where Jesus will do this in a more full sense in the future, in the new heavens and the new earth. But here's what's fantastic. God does not describe Jesus the way I want him to. Because if I were going to describe Jesus, like I said before, I would describe him with a big tree trunk or something manly, something powerful. No, God calls Jesus a branch, a twig. Because Jesus came from humble origins. He was born in a manger of all places. From the humble line of Jesse and David. That's Jesus as the branch. And then in verse 9, we get another title for Jesus. The third and final title that God gives to this one that he's sending in the future. Verse 9, For behold, the stone which I have given before Joshua is a stone upon which is seven eyes. And behold, I am engraving an inscription, declares Yahweh of hosts. Notice this third title. Jesus is called the stone. Now, really quickly, I just want to turn to uh, Isaiah 28, because here again, Zechariah is drawing on Isaiah. And I just want to read uh, just a couple of verses from Isaiah 28, verses 14 through 18. Hear what, Zechari- what uh, Isaiah has to say about this stone. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who ruled this people in Jerusalem. 
Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have made an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us. For we have made lies of our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Therefore, now listen to this, therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a testing stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Notice the imagery that Isaiah is drawing there. He's, he is drawing the idea of the fact that this Messiah who's going to come, this one that God is going to send, is going to be a stone, a temple stone. And he's going to be the cornerstone upon which everything is built. That is exactly the imagery that Zechariah is drawing on here. He describes a stone that God is engraving in verse 9 here in Zechariah 3. A stone that God is engraving an inscription. What Israel did for the stones of the, the temple is they would engrave the stones. They'd make them beautiful. They weren't just bricks. They wanted it to be beautiful. And so they'd engrave inscriptions or carve figures on the stones or that sort of thing. That's what's being described here is a temple stone. The same temple stone that Isaiah is talking about in chapter 28. And furthermore, not only is this stone described in verse 9 a simple temple stone or a simple cornerstone, but Zechariah makes the sort of bizarre claim to us that this stone is going to have seven eyes. Now that sounds really weird. Like, okay, a stone with seven eyes, what on earth is this guy talking about? Is he had too much pizza before he wrote this prophecy or something. Well, the idea of the eye in Hebrew means, of course, sight, as it does in English. If I say something has two eyes, I'm saying it has the ability to see. Here we're told that this stone has seven eyes. And I'm sure a lot of you have heard before that in Scripture, particularly in Hebrew, the number seven is the idea of completeness. It's the idea of wholeness. And so what Zechariah is saying is that this stone having seven eyes means that this stone will be all-seeing. This stone will have the divine attribute of omniscience. That is of knowing everything and seeing everything and being everywhere, omnipresent, omniscient. Well, those are divine qualities. And I think in light of the revelation that we find in the New Testament, Zechariah here is hinting at the fact that this servant, this branch, this stone that God is sending will be divine. And of course, we know that person as the person of Jesus Christ. This servant, this branch, this stone will come from humble origins out of the line of David, but he will have seven eyes. That is, he will be divine. It's the deity of Christ right there. The deity of the Messiah being hinted at here in the Old Testament. Now look at the last part of verse 9. This is the, the real kicker here. And I will remove the iniquity of the earth in one day. That is the work of this person that God is sending. That is the work of this person that God is saying. And this, is, this would be just 
jaw-dropping for the Israelites. I mean, can you imagine? They're offering sacrifices constantly, multiple sacrifices every day to atone for their sin. And suddenly God says, hey, when this guy comes, when this stone comes, when this branch comes, when this servant comes, guess what? I'm going to remove the sin, not only of you guys, but of the entire world in one day. Just like that. Because this guy is going to be the perfect sacrifice. That is the task of this person that I am sending. And you see, O Joshua, you high priest, and all of those who dwell before you, this is why you guys are simply types and signs of the one who is to come. Because this one who is to come won't have to offer sacrifices constantly, every day, all the time. This one who I'm sending is going to be the ultimate fulfillment of you Old Testament priesthood because he is going to accomplish the removal of the iniquity of my people over the whole earth. Once and for all. That's a huge teaching right there. Now keep in mind, this is not teaching a universal atonement and saying that Jesus died for everyone, including the non uh, elect or including the reprobate. No, this is just saying that all sin in the whole world for all of God's people is going to be removed in one moment. And that is the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And verse 10 here describes the blessing that is a result of the work of Christ. On that day, verse 10, that is on that day that the iniquity is removed, declares Yahweh of hosts, you every man will summon and meet his neighbor under the grapevine and under the fig tree. This is imagery of relaxation and peace. Right? You know what it's like. It's very, very uh, relaxing to set out a lawn chair and sit underneath a tree. That's what's being described here. Peace. No wartime, no worries. What this branch, what this servant, what this stone is going to accomplish is going to bring peace to God's people so they can sit under the vine and sit under the tree and just relax because they have peace with Almighty God. We may have to work a little harder in this passage, but nonetheless, you see the gospel is no less clearly presented here than it was last week. We have prophecies about this Messiah, that he's going to come from the humble line of David and that he's going to be divine. And what's he going to do? He's going to accomplish the forgiveness of sins for God's people in the whole earth in one day at one moment. And peace with God, that shalom, will be established. Folks, we as God's people living after the time of Jesus... We experience this most fully than anyone else in redemptive history. We get to sit under our spiritual lawn chair, or sit on our spiritual lawn chairs, under our spiritual grapevines and fig trees, because we have peace with God through what Jesus did. We don't have to worry about what happens in the next life. We don't have to worry about what happens when we die. And when we go to be with the Lord, because we know the scripture tells us, it confirms to us 
that we are saved and that we have peace with God because of the work of that Messiah who came and did what we could not do. Praise God for this great truth that we see here in Zechariah. Let's uh, close our time together in, in a brief word of prayer. Oh God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this prophecy in Zechariah. Lord, we pray that you would help us, help us to understand your word, help us to see Christ, help us to see the gospel, Lord. And here we don't have to work super hard to see this. Lord, it's here. You present this teaching that you sent your servant, the branch, the stone, all the person of Jesus, and you sent him to do what we could not do. And Lord, we thank you that in one day, you removed the iniquity of the whole earth. You removed our iniquity. You removed my iniquity. Lord, thank you for that. Lord, we pray that you would help us to trust you more, to not be worried about what this world throws at us, and not be worried about what happens when we come before you in the judgment, because, Lord, we know that we have been declared righteous not on the basis of our performance or on our works, but we've been declared righteous on the basis of the performance of Jesus Christ, your Son. And as a result of that, Lord, we give thanks and praise to you that you have granted us the right of passage among the angels and that we will get to be with you one day in eternal paradise and felicity. Lord, thank you. In the holy and precious name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.